0: Bilingual in America. Tunei elloga fi America.
1: Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America.
2: Serbilingue in America. I'm Suzanne Lasser. I'm Yarina Sanxiang And this is Bilingual in
0: America. Hi, I'm Suzanne Lasser. On today's episode of Bilingual in America, we continue to celebrate the great harvest of La Cosecha, the dual language conference with out-of-the-box leaders and featured speakers like Dr. Jose Medina and Louis Garcia. Today, we'll listen in as they talk about equity, reparations, and indigenous language development. Dr. Medina provides educational consulting and works with schools and districts to create educational access for all students, for their families and the communities they live in. With a specific focus on meeting the needs of culturally and linguistically diverse students, he provides a broad range of support to educational entities throughout the United States and internationally. Yarina Sencion had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Jose Medina. Let's listen in.
1: I'm welcoming Dr. Jose Medina, who I have followed for a good portion of your career. I can't say all of it, but I'm so honored to have you and so happy when I did find you because I felt that I found someone who really talks and walks what they believe in and what they preach. And so thank you, Dr. Jose Medina, for being here with me today.
3: No, thank you, Yarina, for the opportunity to to share uh, a message that I hope your listeners will be willing to receive con corazones abiertos, with open hearts, ¿verdad?
1: Open, yes, absolutely. I always like to give people a context, right? So if you could tell us a little bit of your bilingual story
3: sure so um i am what used to be called an english language learning student since then we have different ways to refer to our the students the emergent bilingual emergent multilingual students that we serve i only languaged in spanish when i started school in el paso independent school district i am first generation mexican american chicano pocho Sap, in paso Juaritos, all the way and um, so my parents, when they came to El Paso, only languaged in Spanish. They did their best. They didn't have a lot of educational access. My mom went up to the sixth grade in Mexico, my dad up to the fifth grade, um, but they believe in education. And as their primogenito, their firstborn child, um, they really pushed me to do well in school. Unfortunately, I wasn't having any of it. And so I was so nervous as a language learner that I actually would run pee on myself, kick. I mean, I was, I was really, really not feeling comfortable in school because I didn't language in English. So I got kicked out of kinder. The principal actually kicked me out. I got, I went back as a first grader, got kicked out again. It, It was really, really traumatic, my entry into the schooling system. At one point as a first grader, I even got strapped to a gurney and rolled into my first grade class in a puddle of my own urine, um, as my mom and my dad watched in disbelief. So I know that that people may think, oh, well, you know, Dr. Medina is a little bit older, like those things don't happen anymore. But there are children right now who language in a language other than English, who continue to be marginalized and who continue to be treated as less than, and in fact, are still tied to gurneys in school districts throughout this country. And actually, let me rephrase that. In every school district in this country, in every school in this country, there are students that continue to be marginalized and who continue to be the recipients of this oppression that causes them trauma. Linguistic trauma is real because the moment that we actually say to a child, no se dice así, that's not how you say it. When we reference kids as being low, that's the moment that we actually, as educators, become the oppressors. So, That entry into the schooling system really has shaped my perspective. I I love that you said that, you know, I I intend to walk the walk every day. It's difficult, but I, I really do get up every morning and understand that whatever privilege I carry, my job is to utilize it, to cause this madre in the name of equity and social justice, to cause good trouble and empower educators to understand how impactful our work is specifically when serving black indigenous communities of color, culturally and linguistically diverse student communities. Um, That's, I think, what guided my work. Um, The first half of my career was um, at the middle school and high school levels. I'm one of those educators that started with the older kids. But then the latter part of my career, uh, I served at the elementary school level and so just threw myself into everything having to do with elementary and and I'm one of those weird researchers who's actually been in a pre-K-12 setting as an administrator And, and I think that gives me a path in terms of how best to dismantle these systems that so often linguistically oppress the students we are charged to serve
1: i really appreciate the lens that you bring both personally and professionally that you have a very wide lens of experience and you've seen kids from kinders up until 12th grade i think really gives a lot of value to to your work and a lot of respect to your work because it really sees the whole picture and then of course your personal experience i'm sorry that that happened but I'm, I'm grateful that it propelled you to move in a direction where this is who you are today because we need more Dr. Medina's in the world. So uh, I'm for that part.
3: Gracias, gracias. Yeah, no, whenever I share my story and I know that, that sometimes it's difficult as a recipient, as a listener to my testimonial, that it's hard to hear. But the reason that I share it whenever I get an opportunity is because only when we actually own what has happened to us, I feel like you're able to really plan for service um, to others. Um, and I'm like you, I'm glad that it happened to me, not because it was a great fun experience, ¿verdad? Ooh, but because if I hadn't gone through that, then I don't know that I would be the fierce advocate that I am now. I'm also glad that it didn't happen to my brother, Gilberto, or my sister Vanessa, and the truth is, is that that experience really is with me every single day, um, whether I engage in research or whether I'm facilitating professional learning or whether I'm speaking with a fab um, educator like you, like it is with me at every moment. Ese, ese trauma, este, en verdad, impacta todo lo que hago.
1: No, I, I, I so understand and I so get it. You mentioned that you you were working with teachers and the school districts and... There's nothing like that type of work because you're like right there in the dirt experiencing teachers and and students and families and their needs and their questions. So what would you want dual language teachers to know and embody in their practice if you if you had like a nugget that you could give them like I need you to understand this.
3: Yeah, so first I would want to praise dual language teachers, right? Because we are still in the midst of a global pandemic and the fact that dual language educators have continued to implement dual language programming. I mean, I just bow down to the work that all teachers do, but specifically dual language teachers. In terms of the one nugget, I would want teachers to remember that dual language is about reparation for the oppression that US schooling systems have inflicted on culturally and linguistically diverse student communities. I don't think that we say that often enough. Dual language is literally a way to offer repair for all of the kids that continue to be tied to gurneys and have for our entire um, educational history in the United States. And I don't think that that sometimes we understand that. And so I would say to dual language educators, Amarense, tighten up the chignon amarrense, apriétense en el chongo, because the work of a dual language teacher is literally to dismantle the systems that have linguistically oppressed emergent bilingual, emergent multilingual students in U.S. classrooms.
1: Can I tell you that I've been in education now for over 30 years, and I've never heard anybody say that, and that, that gives me chills, what you've just said. And I promise that I will become a proclaimer and I will share the message because that I've never heard anyone articulate that in that way.
3: No, pues gracias. Honestamente, este es, es, es el trabajo de mi vida. Like, literally, that's what what guides me every day as I wake up. I'm so grateful for all of the experiences that I've had in terms of the schools and districts that I've served. I'm grateful to the Center for Applied Linguistics that saw something in me that allowed an openly queer, brown, Spanglish-speaking educator come into one of the most prestigious think tanks in the world in terms of serving emergent bilingual students, because I think all of those experiences and and and, and really support that that those educational leaders have given me, has created this path for me that is very, very clear. No tengo dudas um, in terms, I don't have any doubts in terms of what I'm supposed to do on this earth, in terms of my uh, passion to really serve communities that often have been left on the side of the road.
1: And there's nothing like clarity and passion married together,
3: right? Híjole, pues mira, mira. <laughs> I mean, that is, the, that is the hope. And I want you to know that I'm still a hot mess, eh? I'm a hot mess. I'm a linguistic oppressor. I have bias and prejudice in my heart. I mean, soy un desbarajuste, como dice mi mamá. But in terms of my goals, in terms of the service that I'm supposed to provide, that is very, very clear. And so when I take a misstep, which I do often and which I do daily, then I dust myself off get up and then continue on this journey, which is to hopefully inspire all educators, but specifically dual language educators to action.
1: I love that you're so transparent about being a hot mess because aren't we all, but what's important is that you reset and you reset to your vision, you reset to your passion, you reset to your clarity, and then you pick yourself up and continue because honestly, if I had to declare that I had it all together all the time, I, I mean, really, who does that? No one, right? No
3: one, no one. But you know what's so weird is that as educators, we've kind of been taught that that we can't be a hot mess, you know? Que tenemos que responder eso. Like The truth is that every single educator walks into a classroom setting. Every administrator walks into a school building and we bring bias and prejudice into the space. And so if we say, no, yo, yo no tengo nada de prejuicio. I, I don't have a racist bone in my body, I don't have any bias. I mean, first of all, mentiroso, mentirosa, mentirosa, liar, liar. And second of all, if we don't acknowledge that, then it's difficult to actually move forward in terms of an equity and social justice journey.
1: Absolutely. I mean, your commitment is evident, your passion is like lit. Right? And you've, you've done so much. Like you have your educational consulting firm, which is Dr. Jose Medina, the Educational Solutions. You've co-authored um, the book, Guiding Principles for Dual Language Education. And you mentioned you're participating in La Cosecha. You're like, one of the featured guests? I love it. Hey. <laughs> Clearly your calendar is full, your, your, your mission is on fire but uh, do you see anything next in, in your life as a next chapter for yourself?
3: Sure, so first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful anytime anybody invites me to share um, my thoughts, um, strategies, you know, my beliefs in terms of how best to serve students. Um, La Cosecha is an amazing conference. It, it allows so many in the field to come together and really share and learn from one another. So I'm super excited that I'm gonna be there. What's next? So right now, I'm actually engaged in a six-year longitudinal research project in the state of Texas through the University of Texas at El Paso with a fabulous friend and colleague, Dr. Elena Izquierdo. Um, So that's really, really keeping me busy as I also serve schools and school districts. The research is really focused on the C6 by literacy instructional framework. It was conceptualized really to be able to scale some of these um, culturally and linguistically sustaining practices because lo que pasa, often in schools, like you'll have pockets of greatness because teachers are awesome in spite of educational leaders like myself. I mean, I've been a principal. Um, I was a hot mess as a principal. I think I served teachers and students and families well, but I'm sure I made a lot of mistakes, but teachers are going to rock it out. And so we want to go beyond the classrooms that everybody visits on a, on a campus and rather Um, have a systematic way to ensure that that is able to be replicated and and seen in every classroom. And so that's what the research project is about. Um, The C6 by literacy instructional framework is the only lesson planning framework that I'm aware of that is grounded fully in the work of critical consciousness, anti-bias, anti-racism, and specifically was conceptualized for dual language bilingual programming, because the truth is for most of the career of a bilingual educator, you show up to PD at the district level and you know we'll ask, well, what about bilingual? What about dual? And they'll say often, well, make it your own. And so it's about really breaking down those systems that have not allowed dual language educators to know exactly what I am supposed to do in order to culturally and linguistically support the students that I am charged to serve. So I'm super excited about, about that um, ongoing work. We are in year two. And so we're at the initial stages of that um, research project, but it it really is amazing to be able to put all of those things that I saw in the classroom as a practitioner, um, as an administrator, as a district leader, as uh, you know, a servant at the Center for Applied Linguistics, but now really giving it my own twist in terms of that desmadre in the name of equidad and, justicia social.
1: Oh, my goodness. I love it. <laughs> que
3: bueno, que bueno porque, o sea, es lo que está manejando la mayoría de mi tiempo. Like, that is so time-consuming but so rewarding because I feel like Dr. Izquierdo and I, along with um, other researchers on the project, like Dr. Vanessa Espitia, Vivian Pratt, like, we are doing um, something that I don't feel has been fully done before, which is really put down onto paper. What does it look like for me as a teacher, as I am serving in a dual language program, an e classroom, in a monolingual setting, in any setting, how can I truly be more culturally and linguistically sustaining?
1: How empowering. Usually when there's research, it takes so long for it to translate into classroom life. Sometimes it takes years before it reaches us. But I feel like, I'm in the know I feel I feel honored and privileged like I'm going to be able to like follow this and then in six years I'm going to be hello what's going on with this because I I don't want it to, I don't want to wait that long, I want it yesterday.
3: Yeah, and so luckily we we're not waiting right because what we've done what our team has done is really taken these um, practices that that many in the field have recommended but given them shape and so it doesn't matter what professional learning you've had in the past you bring it into the space because that's all fabulous and it's a part of your pedagogical tool belt so it isn't about learning something new it's about giving shape to those pieces that we already own as educators and then making sure that they align with the latest in terms of Culture and language research so that we can truly, truly create that educational access for the students specifically that haven't had access to those things before.
1: I love that explanation. I don't have to reinvent myself, I don't have to learn something new. I'm going to give shape and form to what I already know. That's so refreshing. In Bilingual in America, our hashtag is speak your beauty. It is evident that you speak your beauty every day. In everything that you do, are there other ways that you speak your beauty out into the world?
3: Yeah, so I want you to know that I've been asked many questions and I had never been asked this question. First of all, I love the hashtag. And so as I was reflecting, like, how would I answer that? The first thing I want to say is it took me a long time to begin to love myself because I knew from the moment I walked into that kindergarten class that I got kicked out of, I knew that whatever I was and whatever language I spoke, which was Spanish, wasn't what was wanted, wasn't what was needed, and wasn't what was valued in that schooling system. I'm so blessed that I now serve in El Paso ISD and El Paso ISD is doing amazing work. But in speaking my truth, This is what I would say um, speaks my beauty. I speak my beauty by being unapologetically from the neighborhood, del barrio. I know who I am, sé de donde vengo, and my job literally is to disrupt spaces in education every day that weren't intended for me. Like I'm very clear. That is my beauty. I speak my beauty by being Openly and unapologetically queer, which to be a queer educator even today is difficult. Um, I started in the '90s, and so imagine what it was back then. Even today, um, it is difficult for LGBTQ plus educators. And so the fact that I can be fully myself in terms of um, my love for you know the man of my dreams, I mean Antonio Diaz Cruz um that speaks my beauty I think I'm also super pocho super mexicano super americano super latinex latine and so it doesn't matter whether I'm serving in the United States or in Asia or in Europe yo entro pero siendo super super latinex always um and then finally I think that I speak my beauty, because even though there are some that aren't ready to hear the message, Spanglish is a part of my heart. Y si yo hablar en dos idiomas and you can't understand me, no es mi culpa, suck it up. And so I think that that's the last piece that, that is really a part of this puzzle that I'm trying to create and really loving my language repertoire because the love hasn't always been there. Pero ahí vamos, poquito a poquito.
1: Beautiful. And you know what, I really heard you say is you speak your beauty by being you, completely beautiful, hot mess, whole package, you. And for that, there's nothing to apologize when it's beautiful. So we're excited because, of course, La Cosecha, the harvest conference, is right around the corner for anyone who hasn't registered. You have time to still attend virtually because it's a hybrid event running from November 10th to the 13th. In order to do that, they would just have to go to lacosecha.org.
3: Yeah, they would just go to the website and I will be there on Wednesday, I think is when I arrived. Um, I have a presentation on Thursday that will focus on linguistic liberation, con estrategias pedagogicas, some um, actual tools that you're able to implement quickly. And then on Friday, I'm going to be presenting with Dr. Elena Izquierdo on our um, six-year research project. So um, I'm I'm excited to share some of that information because it's it's ongoing um, research, but we're we're implementing in school districts around the country and internationally. So I'm excited about those two sessions that I get to serve um, the community um, at La Cosecha with.
1: They sound like amazing topics. Regarding the research, what I love about what you said is that. It's living research, right? It's in the moment. There's a lot of power behind that. Bueno, Dr. Jose Medina, such an honor, truly from my heart, de mi corazón. Lo admiro muchísimo. I admire you so much. And thank you for spending this time with me out, out of your very extremely busy schedule, and yet you carved out some time to spend with me. And por eso lo aprecio mucho.
3: No, a sus órdenes, Yarina. Thank you, thank you uh, for everything that you're doing. Y hay unos vidrios pronto, como dice mi mami, mi papi. Hay unos vidrios quickly.
1: Muchas gracias.
3: Adios.
0: I'm Suzanne Lasser. I'm joined by Luis Garcia. Luis is a bilingual educator, Born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He is of Tiwa Piro Pueblo and Chicano heritage and dedicates much of his time to promoting dual language education and the maintenance of cultural traditions like Pueblo weaving. He's also a board member of Dual Language Education New Mexico. Luis is going to be presenting as part of a panel at the upcoming La Cosecha Conference. Louis talks with us today about he and his wife, Paula, a native Nahuatl speaker from Central Mexico. During our conversation, I learned about both language revitalization and language acquisition, things that are happening with the Nahuatl speaking community in Mexico. Louis is filled with information and firsthand experience about the ongoing battle that takes place in Mexico and even here now, as we see the immigrant population arriving and a greater need to support those indigenous languages. Luis, I want to welcome you to Bilingual in America.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Yes, and I really think this is a, a prime opportunity to share with our listeners about the work that you are involved in. I guess the first question would be, um, what brought you to this important place where you are going to
2: be part of the revitalization of the language? That's a good question. My my wife is actually a native um, Nahuatl speaker from the state of Morelos in Mexico. And she's actually uh, an interpreter here in the States in the court system. She does a lot of traveling to uh, interpret in different parts of of the United States, where they need um, Nahuatl interpreters, if people aren't aware, there's actually a shortage now with the influx of uh, Indigenous people from Mexico into the United States for work purposes and for asylum. You know, all kinds of different situations happening in their home uh, villages and home states that are causing an efflux of families and individuals out of their traditional communities and into large urban areas here in the United States for work purposes and just, you know, general safety. There's um, a very large need for interpreters in a lot of these Mesoamerican languages, Nahuatl being the largest uh, with just under two million speakers today. So that's how that's my association with the Nahuatl language.
0: And so it's so interesting you talk about the need for this because oftentimes when in the school setting, we have students that come from Central and South America, uh, predominantly Central America. They'll say, oh, they speak Spanish, let's put them into the bilingual Spanish English class. And it turns out that Spanish is their second language. And then they are learning Spanish while learning English and going through this process. So it's interesting to hear about this shortage. I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. And it's great to know that there is this opportunity to, to try and build upon it, because I imagine that in time, we will need more of those individuals to, to really help the transition when you are migrating or an immigrating person.
2: Exactly. And as a bilingual educator um, here in the States and a, a big supporter and of, you know, bilingual education and just, you know, really being aware of all of the issues that surround language and language revitalization, all of the different aspects, language acquisition, I mean, you name it. It's really, you know, there's lots of important issues around that. And like you say, in the schools, we have a growing number of immigrants from indigenous communities. I know Mixteco has a huge community in California and we're starting um, to see more speakers of definitely for sure Nahuatl, because like, as I mentioned earlier, Nahuatl is the largest indigenous language group in Mexico. So it makes sense that a lot of uh, people, mostly from Southern, uh, uh, the states of Guerrero, Puebla, uh, Veracruz are some of the areas where we see more uh, native speakers coming from. Those, and as you mentioned, many of of those individuals, their indigenous language is actually their first language, and they don't start um, even learning Spanish until they uh, enter the school system. And many of these communities even have bilingual education in their in their homes in their community schools. So it's it's a slow process for them. To gain Spanish as a second language, even. So it makes sense that, you know, we get adults and, and, and young people in, in the states now that are speaking Spanish as a second language. And so there's definitely um, that strong need. And one of the reasons, because I am, am on the organizing committee of um, La Cosecha and also uh, a board member of DLENM. I felt that since one of our our themes for this year's conference is Sin Fronteras, I thought it would be appropriate to really take um, a closer look and kind of share a little bit of some of the language revitalization movement um, that is happening right now in Mexico. And I'm aware of some of this because my wife still maintains uh, her connection very much with her home community in the state of Morelos, Cuentepec, Morelos. And so she gets called on to participate in panels and different activities that are going on. And now with the pandemic, that's kind of pushed all of the, a lot of this online through Zoom and other venues to share some of the work that's been happening. And so I've been able to, you know, I've had the privilege of listening in on some of these conversations. And it's really fascinating. A lot of the, I would call it a language um, revolution that's happening right now. In Mexico with indigenous languages which they refer to as mother tongues. Las lenguas maternas is what they refer to as their indigenous languages. So Nahuatl language being again the largest group but also Mixteco, Zapoteco, I mean all of there are 62 around 62-63 native languages in Mexico today still spoken. Um, So it's a big movement and each community you know has their own celebrations. It happens in February is when they have the Festival de las Lenguas Maternas, and they have several events that go on, including book fairs, celebrations, cultural presentations. It's really very, very inspiring to um, learn of some of the work that's been going on, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to uh, provide a panel to allow some of the, the individuals that are are making this work happen in Mexico to share some of a little bit of what's going on. South of the border from us.
0: I think it's amazing that uh, you're able to spotlight this because just listening to you, right? I, I've already—I I wasn't aware that there are more than 60 indigenous languages. Yes. You know, I thought about maybe three or four that I've heard through different studies, right? Mm-hmm. However, it's amazing to know that there are also these different festivals as mm-hmm. well. And so, as you're talking, I'm—I'm I'm wondering about translanguaging, right? So, mm-hmm. does the same thing happen? Um, in Mexico, with the indigenous language and Spanish, the same way we see translanguaging happening here with our, you know, students who are Spanish dominant learning to speak
2: English. Definitely. Yeah, it's something that you see uh, in the, the community that my wife is from. You have the translanguaging hap- happening in, in a very natural form, although her village is true to the Nahuatl. It's, it's actually the last community in the state of Morelos that still maintains the language uh, on a very high level throughout all of the ages so you still have infants learning nahuatl you know from birth although uh, more and more families are starting to to transition and kind of for whatever cultural pressures and the racism that goes on in mexico is really amplified in comparison Uh, not that we don't have that there's not racism here in the states but I think Mexico has a, a little bit of a different colonial history than here in the United States. And so for many, many different reasons, um, social pressures and racism and classism, all of the isms, right, that kind of prevent or dissuade some families to teach their children the language is still very strong in some of their communities. So it's there's, it's kind of a process, a sort of slow process of acculturation, but You know, there are some strongholds, indigenous communities that still are working very hard to maintain the language, but you kind of see it creeping in more and more over the years. And uh, it's very uh, important for these communities to be aware of, you know, some of those social pressures and then work to counter them so that their, their own community members kind of can understand what that dynamic is and you know, there's a part of the movement right now in Mexico is not to be ashamed to speak. And I've actually seen it uh, myself. And, you know, we were in the market. Uh, one time we were shopping for for one of the celebrations and and the women were speaking in Nahuatl. And one of the vendors, very rude, came up and said, no, um, no anden hablando así aquí. No ven que están en el mercado. Like, you know wow. getting after them and I, my mouth just dropped like i just wanted to tell him off you know but i never thought i would actually see that but it's still a very real experience today i think it's great that there are people who are kind of coming into this consciousness and sharing that with community members their family members there's we should not have to be ashamed to speak our own language in public places but for a long time many of of the communities um, themselves kind of it was like this self-imposed rule that outside of the community you don't speak the language. But that paradigm is slowly shifting.
0: It's interesting, right? That same thread is I think in so many narratives where the dominant language is, you know, the one that people will use publicly but they'll keep something at home. They they want to make sure that they're not going to potentially be, to the most extreme, they can be killed, right? And if we look mm-hmm. through history in terms of language use or chastise, uh, there, there are so many challenges that continue to exist with making sure that there is some value placed on what is not part of the dominant culture. It was interesting in preparation for our conversation, I did a little bit of research and it said that there is, by no way, is now what, a dead language. Mm-hmm. And that there is as much classical Nahuatl committed to writing as classical Greek.
2: Mm -hmm. On a larger scale in terms of indigenous languages, many indigenous languages are not written. And um, some communities have very little in terms of um, the literacy aspect of the language. But I think because of the colonial history in Mexico, especially with the Nahuatl communities, the Spanish friars um, exerted a great amount of effort to to Christianize the indigenous population. Um, there were some notable ind- individuals, such as uh, Bernardino Sahagún, who made a great effort to learn the language and document the language by um, indigenous scribes. So there are actually there were actually codices. They're called codices that were created in the in this colonial period where they were writing the language so, so they would uh, select indigenous individuals to to educate them in the written language. And so the, the Nahuatl language actually has a very long history of, of being written and, and used to record various events and information, um, some of which being the, um, the Florentine Codex, the Nican Mopoa, relating to, you know, different aspects of the culture. But Definitely, I think in in the modern uh, bilingual programs in the schools, um, the literacy is an important part of um, that language um, revitalization and creating that. And some communities have started a little bit more um, efforts in earnest to document and and write the language. Um, most of which are, you know, phonetic writing because there were you know never existed in an alphabet, but they do the best they can to document the language
0: so much work to be done to preserve right what once covered a lot, very large expanse so to think now that it's down to you know just under two million people mm-hmm. um, I'm sure that there's a lot of pressure to make sure that this does not die out and that there is a, a you know resurgence of interest of pride and of, of use I think it's just wonderful that you're able to part of this with your wife and really to share this with the bilingual dual language
2: community. Definitely. I think um, it's an opportunity for, you know, exchange of experiences because here in New Mexico and in the States, we have also um, many indigenous communities who are uh, up against these same struggles. And, you know, I think that the border is really just a political border but we're the same people, you know, dealing with the same pressures uh, in society. And I think the more that we can come to the table and have conversations and share our experiences, we'll see that we're not alone, we're not isolated, and and we can um, find strength and support in sharing our our stories.
0: Yes, because the heart of everything is humanity, right? right? And we're part of the same human experience. Here on Bilingual in America... Our hashtag is Speak Your Beauty. How do you speak your beauty? How would you sum it up? Because it's clear that you speak it in more than one way. But for you, what does that mean, speak your beauty?
2: I think that speaking your beauty is getting back to your heart and speaking from your heart. One of my teachers has, has taught us that it's the, the the longest road is from the mind to the heart. And as Indigenous people, we're often taught to speak from the heart and not so much the mind. And that is definitely in contrast to the mainstream education and the mainstream culture. But I think in the, in the process of decolonization and connecting with our roots again, we need to consciously make that effort to, to speak from the heart rather than from the mind. And to me, that's what encapsulates Speak Your Beauty.
0: I love that. May, may everyone take what you just said, just sit with it in their day-to-day interactions. So I want to thank you for, for joining me today and bringing forth the awareness and insight uh, regarding Nahuatl and the other indigenous languages as one of the many topics that participants can be privy to at this year's La Conference.
2: For sure, please please uh, make a point to join us. We'd love to have you. It's uh, going to be a hybrid conference this year, so there's lots of opportunities to join in.
0: So I was going to ask you, what can you tell? Our, what can you say to our listeners so that they can uh, at least have one or two words of Nawat as part of their vocabulary base?
2: Yes, for sure. There's actually um, lots of Nawat even um, that we, that has been adopted into the English language. So words such as um, Avocado, chocolate, everyone loves chocolate, right? Those are all (laughs) words that originate from the Nahuatl language. Tomato, coyote, those are all, you know, words that originate in Nahuatl. But um, one of my favorite words is thank you. And uh, in the Nahuatl language, they say "tlasokamati," And "tlasokamati" is a word that literally translates to, with my mouth, I express compassion or love in appreciation. So Tla sokamati is tla soka mate. Okay. Yes.
0: thank okay. you for sharing that. And mm-hmm. I look forward to continuing this conversation and hearing the progress that is being made with this work uh, that you and your wife are so deeply involved in. Thank you. These two distinguished leaders are setting trends, will be presenting their expertise at this year's La Cosecha Educational Conference. Registration is still open, and since the conference is in hybrid format, you can participate. Recordings will be available up until January. To register, please go to lacosecha.org. We've had a chance to hear what they had to share in terms of The importance of the exchange of experiences, social pressures, and this understanding that we need to continue to come into greater consciousness when we think about overall language development. They continue to reaffirm how language and culture are weaved together. We are excited to continue to be part of this ongoing journey, working through an amazing tapestry. So, until next time, continue to speak your beauty.
1: Thank you for your interest in the stories we share. By sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm, Bilingual in America, and our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast, you are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback, and we appreciate your support. Follow us, like us, share us.